Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Yes, we're back in the Gospel of Luke. Took a few weeks off for Easter, but we're going to dive right back into God's Word in the Gospel of Luke. Roger, are the house lights all the way up, or is that, maybe they, oh, there we go. I've told you over the past few years about the dangers of progressive Christianity, Progressive Christianity is a movement by some so-called evangelicals who are trying to redefine all of the cardinal truths of the Christian faith. They're basically abandoning these things in order to be accepted by the world. And one of the saddest ones, I think, is a man who's my age. His name's Rob Bell. Maybe you've heard of Rob Bell. Uh, Back in the early 2000s, he started a church that grew to about 10,000 people. It was a megachurch in Michigan. He was being heralded as the next Billy Graham. Very popular. And in 2011, he wrote a famous book, or now it's an infamous book. It's the book that's called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who's ever lived. And in this book, he began to question the reality of hell. Do people actually go there? What about those who've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone? And so this book got him into a lot of hot water. As a matter of fact, he was fired from his church, but the book sold over 500,000 copies. It put him on the cover of Time magazine, and he became a friend with Oprah Winfrey. He then, some of you are laughing, like, okay. Um, He wanted to find himself spiritually, so he packed up his family and he moved to Hollywood. And in Hollywood, California, he has totally renounced the faith. He has a podcast called The Robcast. He started that in 2015. It's got over a million downloads. But he's pretty much abandoned the faith. He's renounced everything that he once held to as an evangelical pastor. And now pretty much he denounces all of those types of things. And especially the doctrine of hell. Now, why do I bring up the doctrine of hell? You didn't think you were going to come to church today and hear a sermon about hell, did you? Everybody's like, okay, it's time to leave. (laughs) Hell. There's probably no other topic that divides people or brings up more controversy and discussions than the topic of hell. Many Christians are frankly embarrassed to even bring it up. But I want to remind you of something. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Do you realize the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, speak more about hell than do the epistles, Paul and Peter? Now, those epistles do talk about hell. And so, why do I bring up hell today? Well, as we're going to see this morning, we are going to be reading and studying the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we need to tread through these waters carefully. Because any time a pastor stands up and preaches on the doctrine of hell, we need to be very careful. We need to be very sober. We need to be very serious-minded. So let's 
read the words of Jesus. And I want to remind you, these are on the lips of our Savior, Jesus. So let's read together in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now there's some debate over this as is this, is this a parable that Jesus is telling with real people? Was this a literal event? Or is this a story that Jesus makes up that has names? Now, I believe it's a parable. But just because it's a parable doesn't mean that there are not truths in here that tell us about hell. It's very interesting. This is a unique parable. It's the only parable where we have a person's name listed. Lazarus. We don't have the rich man's name. Some of the older translations have his name as Dives. If you have a King James, maybe you have the word Dives. It comes from the Latin Vulgate, which is the actual Latin word for rich man. So and sometimes when you read Spurgeon and some of the older ones, you're like, who's this Dives guy? Well, it's, it's the rich man. Um, so we see a major difference between these two men. Let's just look at the difference and how Jesus paints, paints a portrait here of the, of the contrast. Verse 19 there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. He's clothed in purple linen. Now that may not mean a lot to you, but back in that ancient culture, they got this purple dye from this shellfish, from these sea snails. And purple dye, purple clothing, was the most outlandish, the most extravagant in that ancient culture. And so basically, this man is filthy rich. It says he feasted sumptuously every day. So every day he had his heart's content. He lived in the lap of luxury every day, dressed to the hilt, extravagant. And also it says that Lazarus was laid at his gate every day. Now he was rich enough to live in a house that had a gate. Back in that culture, it was not common to have a gate at your house. And actually, the, the Greek word there for gate means a very ornate gate, a large gate. So this is a very rich man. And that's all we know about him. He's rich. He lives in the lap of luxury. But we need to be very careful here 
and not misinterpret what Jesus says and what Jesus doesn't say. Nowhere in this parable does Jesus say it's a sin to be rich. There are many Christians who are wealthy that God has blessed them with money. So there's nothing in this particular parable. Now, Jesus has a lot to talk to say about riches, but in this parable, it's not because he's rich that he goes to hell. We'll find out that here in just a moment. Also, we know he doesn't care for the poor. Lazarus comes by him every day, and he doesn't acknowledge the poor man, Lazarus, at his gate every day. So you have the contrast of the rich man living in the lap of luxury, dressed sumptuously, eating sumptuously, and then Lazarus is laid at his gate every day. Now, two things pop up to us in the original language that you don't quite get from your English translations. If you look there in verse 20, at his gate was laid a poor man, was laid If you go back and you look at that original language, the word laid there really means he was discarded. He was just kind of thrown away. It kind of has the idea that that Lazarus is kind of an afterthought. He's kind of discarded. He's just tossed aside. He's left over. And the name Lazarus means God has helped me. That's what the name Lazarus means. Now, he has sores all over his body. This is not leprosy because if he had leprosy, he would not be able to be in close proximity to other people. This is probably open ulcers all over his body. So he's in extreme pain and also he's a beggar. He doesn't have food. He has to rely upon the generosity of this rich man to give him the leftovers. And to make matters worse, it says there that the dogs came and licked his sores. Yesterday, my dog was licking me all up and down, and it was driving me nuts. You've had that happen before. It's like, get away. Back then, dogs were not man's best friend. They were scavengers. They were dirty animals that nobody wanted around. So here's a picture of a man who has open sores. He's laid there. He's discarded. He's a beggar, and he has dogs licking his sores. So the the contrast could not be greater. The rich man living in the lap of luxury with no needs whatsoever and Lazarus, the poor man, the beggar in hopes of getting scraps and leftovers. But what happens in verse 22? We see the great equalizer. They both die. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Death is the ultimate equalizer. Death does not care about your social status. Death does not care whether you're rich or poor. You can't, quote-unquote, pay off the Grim Reaper to not come to your house. You can't, you know, give him a $100 bill and say, don't show up. You can't pay off debt. It plays no favorites. And so Jesus continues to show the contrast between these two men by describing their respective destinies. Notice where Lazarus goes. It says in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He was carried by angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. Now, what does this mean? What's Abraham's bosom? What's Abraham's side? It's basically a synonym for heaven. When Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is another term for it. Heaven, Abraham's bosom. It's basically just a description of heaven. But you have to ask the question, why Abraham? 
Why does Abraham show up in this text? Why Father Abraham? What's the issue with Abraham? Well, if you go back and you read your Bible, especially from the Old Testament, you know that Abraham was a man of faith who believed God. In both Romans and both Galatians especially, Paul tells us that Abraham was the father of the the faithful. Those who have faith in Christ, Abraham was kind of the first, the prototype. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Galatians 3, 6-7, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So Lazarus is a son of faith, Lazarus is a believer, and his soul immediately goes to be with the Lord in heaven. This is what happens to all believers, all Christians who die. All Christians who die, their soul goes immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. Directly, immediately. Or as Paul would say it, you go to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's why we say someone went to, be a, went to, went to go home to be at home with the Lord. Paul uses that, that language. Now, you may object and say, well, Pastor Sean, I don't see anywhere in this passage of Scripture where it explicitly says that Lazarus had faith. It simply says he was poor and he died. So where are you getting the fact that he was a believer and he went to heaven because he had faith in Christ? Well, let's think about this for a moment. Let me just ask you a simple question. You don't go to heaven because you're poor, and you don't go to hell because you're rich. Does everybody agree with that? Okay, what what does the whole counsel of Scripture teach about eternal life? It wasn't Lazarus' poverty that sent him to heaven. It wasn't that he was earthly suffering that sent him to heaven. Jesus does not explicitly state it here, but we have to know from the whole teaching of Scripture that those who go to heaven are those who place their faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so the fact that he's called Abraham, Abraham's side, it's basically just this Old Testament way of saying that Lazarus, not only was he an Israelite, the rich man was an Israelite too, both of them were Israelites, but he went to heaven because of his faith in Christ, the same way that Abraham had faith in the Messiah. So Lazarus, because of his faith in the Lord, went immediately to heaven, i.e. Abraham's side, i.e. paradise, heaven, to be at home with the Lord. And he's ushered there by angels. Now, in contrast, where does Lazarus go? Second half of verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He goes to Hades or hell. Now here's what we also need to understand. The souls of unbelievers, those that do not have Jesus as their Savior, when they die, their souls go immediately to to hell or to Hades. And so there's a dramatic reversal here. It's a turning of the tables. On earth, the rich man was in charge of everything, had no needs, he was in control, and now he's in hell as a beggar. Lazarus on earth was a beggar, had to rely upon scraps, but now he's in heaven being comforted in the very presence of the Lord. 
And I want you to notice something. As I was reading this, it really caught me off guard. Do you notice how even in hell, the rich man's ordering Lazarus around? You go do this for me, Lazarus. It's like he still thinks in hell Lazarus is his lackey boy, his errand boy. He still doesn't quite get it. He's ordering Lazarus around as if Lazarus is still his servant to do his bidding. Now, at face value, you look at this parable and you say, okay, there's two extremes. You got a rich man, you got Lazarus, one goes to hell, one goes to heaven. Okay, what's the, what's the point of all this? Well, like all parables, we need to understand the deeper truths that they contain. So from this parable, there are two main truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture. And here's truth number one. Hell is a real place for those who do not repent. Hell is a place of eternal, conscious torment. Not only has this been the history of the church's teaching for the past 2,000 years, not only is it part of our doctrinal statement as a church, but it's also in the Bible. Hell is a place of eternal, conscious torment. Now, this passage does not give a comprehensive picture of hell. A lot of the imagery here, because it's a parable, is somewhat symbolic, but it does paint a picture. We want to get the overall weight and and soberness of hell. Uh, John Calvin said this, For the unbeliever are prepared terrifying torments which no more can be conceived by our minds than the infinite glory of God. It's kind of like this. Calvin's saying, We really can't conceive in our mind the glories of heaven. In the same way, we really can't conceive in our mind the horrors of hell. But this parable gives us a little picture into what it is like. We don't fully understand it because none of us have been there yet to heaven or to hell. But Jesus paints a picture for us. So what do we see about hell that Jesus teaches us? Well, we see three key teachings about hell that Jesus tells us from this narrative here. Here's the first. People in hell will be conscious. Notice that the rich man's aware of his surroundings. He knows where he's at. He's not asleep, is what I'm saying. He's not unconscious. He's not asleep. He's aware. J.C. Ryle said this. This is a a very telling quote from J.C. Ryle. Hell is nothing more than the truth known too late. Hell is nothing more than the truth known too late. So he knows where he's at. He's not asleep. He's aware. He's conscious. He knows what's going on around him. So number one, it's conscious. Number two, second truth about hell, people in hell will suffer extreme anguish. Notice the language that Jesus uses there. In verse 23, in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes. In verse 24, I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, you are in anguish. Verse 28, this place of torment. Multiple times, Jesus calls hell a place of flames, torment, anguish. Jesus talked about this in Mark chapter 9, 48 through 49 where they will be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. The fire is not quenched. Now, we don't have time to dive into Revelation, but Revelation chapter 14 gives the most graphic description of hell in anywhere in the Bible, I think. 
Revelation 14 is talking about those who take the mark of the beast. Revelation 14, 10 through 11. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. The smoke and torment goes up forever. And they have no rest in fire and sulfur. And then Revelation 20, 14-15. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So hell is a real place where people are conscious. They're not asleep. They know what's going on. It's a place of torment. It's a place of anguish. It's a place of fire. But number three, and this may be the the hardest one to grasp. Number three, hell is a fixed eternal reality. It's a fixed, eternal reality. Look at verse 26. What happens to the rich man? He wants to come over. He wants cooling for his tongue. Besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. A great chasm has been fixed. In the original language, it's very strong. The way that it's worded in the original language is this has been fixed and it cannot be altered. It's permanent. It's an unchanging. It's established. It cannot be moved. It cannot be altered. It's set in stone. So, so let's just recap. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. People will be conscious. It will be a place of torment, and it will be eternal. It's a fixed eternal reality. Now here's the problem. Many Christians don't like these teachings on hell. They're embarrassed by these teachings on hell. And so they've come up with some false or let's say less than biblical views on hell to try to make it more attractive. And so I want to briefly explain those because you will hear these from time to time and you need to be able to respond to how people are going to, to, to come at you and say, well, I don't believe all this, this stuff. So what are three false views that are out there that have been around for a long time about hell? These are three false views, unbiblical views. Well, here's the first one. People who go to hell will have a second chance after death. Do you have a second chance? Jesus is very clear that a great chasm has been fixed, and once you're in hell, you can't get out. There is no second chance. It's fixed. It's too late. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. While it may sound attractive that there's a second chance, this passage will not allow that. Second, this is the traditional Roman Catholic view. Some sinners go to purgatory in hopes they can be prayed out by someone still living. The Bible does not teach purgatory. 
The Bible does not teach an, an in-between place where you go to purgatory means to purge, to purge out your sin, that you can do enough good works in purgatory to somehow purge yourself to be worthy enough to get out or someone can pray you out. No, the Bible here talks about two destinations, Abraham's bosom, heaven, paradise, heaven, or, or hell. No, no in-between. The third one, which has gained a lot of popularity lately, as a matter of fact, a few years ago I was on a podcast doing a debate with somebody who's a friend of mine that believes this, but this is becoming more and more popular. This is the third view. After the wicked have suffered in hell for a time, God will annihilate them so they no longer exist. This is called annihilationism. This is kind of a big word. It just basically means... Yes, God's going to punish people in hell, but after a specific amount of time, which we don't know, it's not eternal, they're going to be destroyed. They will no longer exist. They will be annihilated. What does Jesus tell us, or what does Paul tell us about the second coming and about hell? In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Okay. Number one, there is no second chance after you go to hell. It's not like the Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. It's a place you cannot leave once it happens. There's no purgatory. There's no halfway place where you can somehow get out later on. And it's not a place where the lost will be destroyed. Now, we should be saddened by the reality of hell. There is an urgency to believe in Jesus as the only way because there's a great chasm. There's a great chasm What's a chasm? Think about the, the biggest chasm I can think of is the Grand Canyon. It's a chasm. Grand Canyon's a huge chasm in the earth from one side to the other. How do you get from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other? Well, even if you got a running start and you tried to jump across the Grand Canyon, maybe if you're really good, you can, you can get a little far, but what's going to happen? You're going to have a devastating date with gravity, and you're going to fall, and you're going to die. How do you get across any chasm? The only way to get across a chasm, the only way to get across a a gap is to have a bridge. And Jesus is the bridge. He's the only way across. He's the only way to bridge the chasm is to, to cross Jesus. And here's the point. Once you die, it's too late. You need to cross over to Jesus while there's still time. He's the only way of salvation. He is the bridge. Charles Spurgeon said this, if sinners will be damned to hell, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Don't let anybody go to hell unwarned and unprayed for. There's an urgency to tell people about the dangers of hell. It is a real place of eternal conscious torment for those who do not repent. That's truth number one. What's the second truth? There's another truth in this parable. Truth number two. 
the Bible is sufficient to warn you to escape the reality of hell. Now, the rich man begs what? Begs Father Abraham to send Lazarus or somebody from the dead to go back and warn his, his family. Go back and warn his five brothers. So what's the deal here? The rich man, while he was alive, he did not listen to the law and prophets. He did not listen to the Old Testament. He was probably Jewish. He grew up in a Jewish synagogue. He probably was around church. Who knows? But he did not listen to the law and the prophets. His five brothers were probably the same. They'd probably grown up religion. They'd probably been around the synagogue. But it's interesting the wording that the rich man uses. He says in verse 28, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Warn them. Warn with urgency. Actually, some translations say witness to them. Go witness to them. Go warn them. It's almost like the rich man saying this. He kind of has a sense of entitlement. I would not be in hell if somebody had come and told me the message. God, it's your fault. You didn't send a messenger. And God says, listen, they have the law and the prophets. They have the Bible. The law and prophets just means the Old Testament. They have the Old Testament. So the man had enough information from the Bible to know about Jesus before he died. The five brothers who are still alive have enough information from the Old Testament to know about Jesus to place their faith in them. So the problem's not the Old Testament. The problem is a wicked heart that refuses to listen to what God is saying. It's very similar to what Jesus told the Pharisees back in John 5, 39-40. He told the, the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament at that time. You search the Scriptures, Pharisees. You search the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they. It's the Old Testament Scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, listen, from Genesis to Malachi, it's all about me. There's enough information in the Old Testament for you to know about Jesus as your Savior. You're just not listening. You just don't have ears to hear. You have a hardened heart. Think about the imagery from the Old Testament for a moment. I could go on and on today, but think about Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah. He's going to sacrifice him, and at the last minute, the Lord provides a substitute. What's that a picture of? Think about the Passover lamb. They kill a spotless lamb. Put the, the, lamb, the, the blood on the lentils and doorposts. What's the Day of Atonement? What's Isaiah 53? What's all the issues related to the kingship with David? There is tons of information in the Old Testament to tell us about Jesus as the Messiah. It's in there. It's in there. What did Paul tell Timothy? This is fascinating. What did Paul tell Timothy, the, his young protege, about the Old Testament? 2 Timothy 3, 14-15. Timothy, as for you, continue what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, what were the sacred writings that Timothy was acquainted with? At that time, it was the Old Testament. And what does Paul say the Old Testament has done? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy, you got saved because you read your Old Testament. It pointed to the Messiah. You had the sacred writings. But you see, for this rich man, the written word is not enough. There needs to be something huge. There's got to be something spectacular. 
You've got to send someone back from the dead as a sign, and then my brothers will believe. It's kind of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let me ask you a very important question. When Jesus performed some of his amazing miracles, did everybody believe because they saw a sign? Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? When Jesus fed the 5,000, you go back at the end of John chapter 6, everybody bailed on him that, that saw the miracle. They walked away. They didn't believe him. There's another Lazarus in the Bible, a different Lazarus the brother of Mary and Martha who Jesus rose from the dead. Remember that Lazarus? Different Lazarus. He came back from the dead. And what happened when Lazarus came back from the dead? Some of the, of the people went and tattled to the Pharisees. They didn't believe. And as a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, John 12, 10 through 11, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They wanted to put to death Lazarus who they had seen raised from the dead. So just because even Lazarus rose from the dead, they didn't believe. They wanted to put him to death. What about the Roman soldiers at the tomb that saw Jesus burst out of the tomb? If you go back to Matthew 28, they were paid off to spread a rumor that the disciples came and stole the bodies. They saw the resurrection. So so you can feed the 5,000, you can bring Lazarus back from the dead, and you can see Jesus rise from the dead and still not believe. and You have all the facts right there in front of you. You can have the signs and wonders. You see, here's the reason the rich man went to hell. It wasn't because he was rich. It wasn't because he was uncaring to Lazarus. It was because when he was confronted with the written word of God about who Jesus is, he shut his ears and did not listen. And he did not repent. And he did not believe. It was a sinful heart of resistance. During his life, he never once heeded the warning of the Bible. What does Jesus say there? Verse 30. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear, heed, listen to Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Bible is all the proof you need to believe. So let's ask a question. Do you believe what the Bible says about God. Do you believe what the Bible says about your personal sin against a holy God? Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus' death on the cross for our sins? Do you believe what the Bible says about his resurrection? Do you believe what the Bible says about heaven and hell? Do you believe what the Bible says that salvation is by grace alone? Do you believe what the Bible says? See, here's the tragic thing about this rich man. He did not listen to God's voice in the Bible. He did not hear the truth of the gospel from the Old Testament, which Jesus says is enough. So here's the question for you. Have you truly heard the voice of Jesus as he speaks to you in the Bible?
Listen to the words of Jesus in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. Jesus is calling to you in his word. When the shepherd calls you, do you hear his voice and do you follow? Do you repent of your sins and do you follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you do, if you hear the voice of Jesus, the shepherd calling you, and you follow, when you die, like Lazarus, you will be escorted by angels into the comforts of heaven to live with Jesus forever. Praise the Lord. If you do not, when you die, like the rich man, you will be cast into the torments of hell to suffer the anguish of judgment forever. Don't experience the terror of the great chasm. The terror of the great chasm. Instead, trust in Jesus who's the only way. Trust in Jesus who's the bridge. Trust in Jesus who's the Savior. Trust in Jesus who's worthy. Jesus will give you the joys of great comfort. The joys of great comfort. Not the terrors of the great chasm, but the joys of great comfort. The great comfort of being in heaven for all eternity. I do not want anybody in this room to leave this place and experience the terrors of the great chasm. My plea for you is that you would leave here knowing the comforts of joy because you've trusted Jesus. But you need to do it before it's too late. Once that day of death comes, that's it. It's final. There is no second chance. Today is the day of salvation. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you followed Jesus? If not, why not today? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Only you can look into hearts this morning and know where people are at. I cannot. I can urge, I can preach, I can warn. But Holy Spirit, you have to do a work of grace. So my prayer is if there's anybody here today that doesn't know where their eternal destiny is, that today they would. Today would be their day to cry out and repent and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They would own up to their sin and know that Jesus is the only bridge. Jesus is the only, the only way to bridge that gap between our sin and a holy God. And so, Lord, would you please do a work in hearts today for those that have never done that. Or for those of us who have been saved from the terrors of the great chasm, the terrors of hell. Would we just live in joyful awe that you saved us? Would we look forward to the comforts of heaven? Would we be comforted to know that loved ones who've gone before us are there with you right now in the presence of the Lord? Would you give us a sense of joy, not fear?
Lord, we come before you today and we just want to be the people you've called us to be. We want to follow you. We want to love you. We want to honor you. And Lord, this may be a, have been a hard message for, for some to hear because we don't often hear about hell. It's kind of sobering. It's kind of, kind of stark. But Lord, if we're going to be faithful to your word, we need to preach what came out of your words, Jesus. You're our shepherd, the great shepherd. We want to hear your voice and not only hear your voice, but follow you. So Jesus, give us the grace this week to follow you wherever you may lead us. Give us an urgency to warn others about the dangers of hell and the joys of heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.